Welcome to the Legal Academy, a podcast about law professors. I'm your host, Oren Kerr, a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley. This is an interview-based show in which I'll interview leading law professors about the Legal Academy. We'll cover topics like legal scholarship, teaching law, university service, and everything else that law professors think about. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the Legal Academy, episode 10. I'm your host, Oren Kerr. My guest this week is Emma Kaufman, assistant professor of law at NYU, uh, about to start her second year in the Legal Academy. Uh, Emma did her undergraduate degree at Columbia and then was a Marshall Scholar uh, at Oxford, where she had her MPhil in 2010 and then received a DPhil in 2012. Uh, She then went to law school at Yale, uh, clerked on the Southern District of New York, and then for Judge Tatel on the DC Circuit. Uh, was then a Bigelow Fellow at the University of Chicago, uh, and then became an assistant professor at NYU in 2019. Uh, Emma's the author of a book, uh, Punish and Expel Border Control, Nationalism, and the New Purpose of the Prison, which came out uh, in Oxford University Press in 2015. Uh, And she has the quite impressive distinction of having back-to-back Harvard Law Review uh, articles, uh, Segregation by Citizenship, which came out last year, which is absolutely terrific. Uh, and a forthcoming article as well, The Prisoner Trade in 2020. Uh, Emma, I'm really, really happy to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here. All right, great. So I wanted to start what's, what's I was ex- really excited to have you uh, here. And one of the things that's great is that everybody else I've talked to so far has been a senior scholar, you know, so folks that have been teaching typically for 30 years or 40 years. And so um, a, a lot of what we've ended up talking about on the show has been sort of perspectives of, of law professors at various stages of their career. And and when those of us who've been doing this for a long time are sort of speculating about what life is like for those starting off, uh, we're speculating. And so it's, I'm just excited to be able to um, uh, uh, get into some of the issues of how things work and look from the perspective sort of early in your career. Uh, and I wanted to start uh, with the question of fellowships and VAPs. Uh, you were a Bigelow Fellow at the University of Chicago, you know, one of the top uh, VAP fellowship programs, uh, certainly. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion among professors about the role of VAPs and um, what they do. Are they really just about credentialing? Are they about um, giving somebody time to write? Um, I was hoping you could offer your take on the role both of VAPs generally and also maybe even the Bigelow program specifically? Yeah, sure. So I'll sort of say two things. One is that my sense of the academy, with the caveat that basically everything I say might change under pandemic conditions, but my sense of the academy generally is that VAPs are becoming more and more common as a kind of precursor to entry into the academy. So at the time that I had finished my clerkships, I fancied myself to be someone who could have gone onto the market and decided to do a VAP. I was sort of at this turning point and decided to do a fellowship because I was risk averse and I thought what, you know, more time is better. Um, And I'm really, really glad I did both because I think it's sort of slowly becoming a prerequisite to entry into the profession, but also because I think it is an incredibly important learning experience and um, opportunity. I, I sort of tell everyone who can, well, I should say, you have to be willing to move to where it is and to afford the pay that comes with a fellowship as opposed to a permanent job. So assuming that that's possible and that can have disparate effects on people, um, if you can do it, I say do it. And um, I think there's two, there's two things that offer. So one is time to write. 
if you haven't written. Um, and also, also time to go on the market. So in the pre-pandemic, you fly everywhere for your job interviews era, it's an incredibly time-consuming thing to go on the market. I, the thing I typically tell people is that when I was on the market between August and December, I wasn't home in my house for more than like two or three nights in a row in that whole time period. So having a job where it's not like a secret that you're interviewing for other jobs <laughs> and that can support you through it is sort of essential to getting into the profession and being able, if you really want to go on and see the sort of full range of schools. So, so one part is just like, it sets you up to do the going on the job market thing with your paper and the flying and all of that. Um, but maybe more importantly, I, despite having done lots of sort of academic things, didn't know what it meant to be a legal academic and to be integrated into the faculty side of a law school. And I totally learned that through the Bigelow. Um, the workshopping that you get to do as a fellow, particularly in the Bigelow, um, was I think critical to my success. I don't think I'd be where I am if I had, didn't do the Bigelow. And to the extent you can say, what is it that you learned? I mean, is it the style of workshopping is it was it a substantive point kind of it's always hard to unpack what it was exactly that yeah from an experience but yeah the, so some, like, what was it some of this may be chicago in particular but um so it is an opportunity for you to get to know law faculty as colleagues and no matter how close you are to law faculty when you're in law school they still you're still in the sort of student posture with those People, I, you know, I was coming off of a doctorate. I was talking about being an academic. I was as close as you could be to sort of trying it out, but there's nothing like actually being seen as a colleague, which means when it comes time to support you or write recommendation letters for you, those people view you in just like a very different way than they would have if you had been their star student. That's just different than I've read early drafts and she's commented on my work and we're sort of peers in some loose sense. So that, that kind of relationship was important. And then, um, yeah, you know, I don't know if there, I guess if you had been maybe in economics, you might not feel this way, but most other disciplines don't workshop the way law schools workshop. Certainly not the way Chicago workshops. And so it's a learned skill. And, you know, at Chicago, you become Teflon, but like learning to do that and to find that engagement rewarding and generative as opposed to like, totally depressing is an important thing to learn how to do. And I, you know, I came to really love it and to see what it was like and to see what good answers were and what evasive answers were. That's all incredibly good prep for going on the job market. Did you feel that there's like a substantive body of knowledge that comes with that, like certain kinds of arguments? And, and this this reminds me of the, the discussion over whether like Yale has its PhD in law program. And I, I remember when it came out, when it was first introduced, there was a lot of criticism of it. Like, oh, this is so silly. There is no sort of PhD material that you need to learn in law. And then of course, you know, the people that have done this program have had fabulous <laughs> success um, on the teaching market, whether they were great when they started or they became great because of the program, I don't know. But uh, but there are a lot of terrific people. And, and it does raise this question of like, is there, is there a body of law that you learn in a VAP or a body of kinds of arguments that you kind of need the VAP or at least it's really helpful to have the VAP to learn? Uh, 
that is kind of a big part of the value? And if so, like, what is that body of law so that you know, everybody can know, know kind of what it is? Yeah. So, you know, when I went to law school after doing a doctorate, I wondered, like, when do we take the canon? Like, when's the sort of core must know these legal ideas class? Chicago actually has a class called Elements that's something approaching that for its for its uh, one else. But um, for the most part, law schools don't assume that their students want to become law professors. We're actually training for something else. And so like making everyone read the path of the law is not like step one in most law schools. Um, so I think the answer is yes. I think there's probably a different sense of the canon at different places. So at Chicago, you learn public choice in a way that you might not if you did a VAP elsewhere. But um, knowing the sort of core methodologies, the core reference points that get made, at least by people in your field. So in my case, the public law people, when they were workshopping, had a kind of set of things. Everybody, you know, in CRIM, everybody's talking about pathological politics and Bill Steins. If you don't know that, you're sort of missing a touch point. Um, and so I suppose it's actually just seeing the people in your field talking about these sort of classics over and over again. But I think that becomes a way to kind of signal that you know what you're talking about and that you understand the kind of history of the discipline into which you're entering. Uh, so it may be specific to your field, but you'll get it. If you watch 30 workshops, you end up getting that kind of canon that comes out. Yeah, it's really interesting. It, it reminds me a little bit when I was on the teaching market and I had no such preparation, right? This was in the old days when I was I was at my job and I just applied through the AALS and, and I remember I was at the Justice Department and my office neighbor was like the deputy chief of the section and he could clearly hear me through the very thin DOJ walls as I was talking to various appointments committees. It was incredibly awkward. Wait, um, you need to go back. <laughs> I could have used a map. Um, and I just remember interviewing. Um, there are still some questions that I received, you know, that 20 years later in my, you know, in my ALS interviews, I'm like, I still don't quite understand what that question was driving at. Or there was some phrase or sort of pre-assumed knowledge. And so it does seem that it's valuable to get that, you know, as you say, sort of these these arguments that are going to come up a lot. And, 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 I, and I take your point, they're going to vary a little bit at Chicago. It's going to be different. From some other places, uh, I also found that out when I visited in Chicago and realized I don't know any of their reference points, and I learned them. Um, but, um, but it, I guess, like you know, could could this be reduced to a book, like a, a a pamphlet of here are the things you need to know, or is it really kind of the kind of knowledge that you just need to be there and encounter it live? So I think the canon of like here's what you need to read could be, and actually that should exist. There should be a sort of like, there is a canonical ideas, like the Kennedy book. I mean, anyway, yes, you could do the thinking and the reading, but there's also this like methodological education about the moves. So it's funny you mention the question where you have no idea what they're asking. What you do in the face of that is a, is a thing you learn by watching people do it. So the question starts and like, no one knows what it means and you think, like, what am I going to do with this pitch that's like wobbly and over here? And um, so the watching of workshops by other people who do it well is, I think, irreplaceable. I also will say at Chicago, and this may not be true everywhere, I watched a lot of job talks. And that was like incredibly and probably the most useful thing I got to do was see a bunch of people come through doing their job talks 
and then see afterwards what happened and what people thought. You know, it's really useful when you're trying to figure out what is this strange hour long thing that's going to decide my fate. So um, probably some of the interpersonal stuff and the how do you handle curveballs stuff can't be replicated. But the, I actually think there's a place for sort of a core ideas canon repository for people who are interested in going on the market. That should be a pamphlet. We should make that pamphlet. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, Ward Farnsworth, uh, now dean at Texas, uh, has uh, a book that is, is kind of that, I, I think it's sort of based on the Chicago 1L fundamentals thing. It's sort of, here are these recurring arguments. And, and I, I recommend that book. I forget exactly what it's called, like The Legal Analyst or something like that. Um, that is kind of an introduction to all of these ideas. And I remember seeing this years later thinking, wow, this would have been incredible, valuable to have at the, at the beginning. I think in part because people go through law school and they have such different experiences. You know, there's no, in, in law school, every professor is teaching their own version of each course, right? And so some students, I remember in just my own, different people had such different things they were learning, maybe the same cases, but very different kind of theories along with the cases. And so that, that I think would be really, would be helpful. Um, do, do you and you don't know it when you're getting it. Like you're either getting public choice towards or a phil philosophy of like dignity and collective decision-making. And you don't know, you actually don't know. You just think you're getting towards. So it would right. be helpful. Yeah. And then of course, you know, you're a summer associate and then the partner says, well, you should look into this. And you're like, oh, of course, it's a dignity problem. And the partner looks at you, look, you're crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the memo that says, like, what is a tort? And you get fired immediately. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so the Bigelow program is obviously one of the leading you know, big pr programs and one of the most successful ones. Um, do you have thoughts for those that are looking at fellowship programs? They, you know, they're sort of the set of the most known ones. How should how should applicants to these programs think about the different options? Is it sort of top one or it's not worth it, or is it all of them are worth it? I mean, how, how I guess maybe the question is how do you know when you're applying whether the program you're applying to is going to be have have that full set of, of values that come along with it? Yeah, so I sort of think there are two models of program, and they don't track rankings or anything like that. They're so how you find this out is a separate question, but there's the sort of room and time to write model and there's the total integration bootcamp model. Um, so Chicago is on the bootcamp side of, you know, the benefits of Chicago are it is the flattest place I've ever been in terms of hierarchy. My office was between Martha Nussbaum and Diane Wood. And that's when you feel like you've made it. When you get this like tiny office in between, you're like, this is cool. Um, you know, and at Chicago, three months in, they're like, where's your paper? Where's your paper? And I really benefited from that. Had I been coming off of, so I did a doctorate before law school and I didn't have a kind of bank of things that I just needed to clean up for the market. If you're really like ready to go and all you need is the time and the freedom, the models of, fellowship where there's much less integration, but a, a, you know, much less teaching as well might be the way to go. So I think the question to ask yourself is how much oversight do I want? How much integration and oversight do I want? And once you decide that about yourself, which has to do with sort of where you are in producing your body of scholarship that you need for the market, um, sorting between the fellowships and then saying, you know, which one I would, I would prioritize exposure to faculty over 
the name of the fellowship by far. Um, and, you know, geography and all the sorts of other things that go into choosing. But I think you know it's right for you if you have self-assessed about what you need from a fellowship, because they all look the same, but they're quite different, I think, in practice. And, and maybe this is two nuts and bolts to even sort of have good, good takes on, but how do you find out? I mean, if you're, if you're applying for these programs, can you yeah. ask them or how sort of, I love the framework you provide. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And, and, but you know, will schools answer? Yes. This is which side of the line we like, Oh, we'll never talk to you. You'll be in a room and <laughs> you'll never interact. No, probably not. Um, I think one proxy for that might be how much teaching you do. So some people say don't do a fellowship with a ton of legal writing teaching, which is like the norm of what you teach in these fellowships. I actually think the opposite, um, but I had been told that going into fellowships. So I think those that do more teaching may line up with those that are more sort of integrated into the life of the school. Um, but that's not one-to-one. -one. There's certainly ones where you do teaching and you're not. I think asking former fellows, just cold emailing someone who had that fellowship and saying, how much integration into the faculty did you have? What kinds, you know, but figuring out the answer to that question, either through emailing or through sort of, you can ask in an interview, sort of what's the norm about, you know, are you required to be in residence? Are you required to teach? Those sorts of things are proxies for how much do you expect to be a part of the day-to-day -day life of the law school? And if you're looking for space because you have your four papers and you need to do the footnotes, Maybe one that doesn't require teaching and doesn't require you to be in residence is a good fit. So it's not as if there's a good and a bad, but I think those things are, are proxies for that question about sort of how much am I a part of the law school? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it is striking to me how, um, you know, on the outside, they're kind of positions that people have, and then they can have such different meaning on the inside, whether it's, I think this is true of visiting professors, some are that really there all the time, others are just flying in to teach a class two days or one day and then they're out. Like you need to kind of figure out where what, what you're gonna get out of it and, and how to do that and sort of take that on your own when you're the person in that position, it seems. But once you're in the academy, you ask people at the school and it's collegial, when you're just breaking in, it, you're right that it's hard to figure it out. So I think finding someone who did that fellowship and emailing them, and if you can find someone who did it in the last, you know, three to five years is probably more useful than the very first Bagel or something like that. But I think that stuff matters. And on, on the teaching point, I'll just say, I would also, I'm a champion of teaching during fellowships and I got exactly the opposite advice when I was going on the market initially or when I was choosing, because you come out with a sense of how to teach, a sense of how to deal with things that inevitably come up in the law school classroom. I feel like I'm in my third year of law school teaching, not my first, and that's different. And also a set of um, teaching evaluations. And that's really helpful on the market, as long as you don't have horrendous teaching evaluations, to be, you know, to go in and say, I know how to do this job, and here's the proof of it. I actually think matters on the market. So I. I'm not one of the people who says like, oh, they're going to bog you down with teaching. It's so terrible. Great. That's really helpful. Uh, I, I wanted to turn to job talk papers. Uh, so the, for the, the, the perspective of the uh, entry level candidate is, of course, they have their package they're going forward with and they've got their ALS form and um, 
maybe these days probably a VAP uh, or a PhD or something or both in some cases. Uh, and then they've got their paper and it's sort of the job talk paper takes on this enormous part of the entry-level process. It's sort of the thing that everyone looks to. Do you, is, uh, how, how should how do people how should people think about coming up with like the the ideal job talk paper what what goes into that and how should people think about figuring out topics for a job talk yeah so this was one of the strangest things coming from a different discipline that you're evaluated on a single paper i mean people look at your cv but it's so strange i told my sister who's a historian and it was like what if it's the one bad paper and that's really bad then um so, and I also, you know, the like advice most people will give you is just write the thing that you want and be who you are, but I'm too honest to say that. I mean, I was strategic and one has to be strategic about what you want your calling card to be. So there's a couple things I would say. One is it has to be something you wanna talk about for a year, because if you hate it, I mean, you will come to hate it by the end of the process no matter what, but it has to be something that you're genuinely interested in I think even more than something that's one-to-one -one representative of all the work you expect to do, something that you wanna talk about a lot. I also think if you've got a paper that can bring in people from different disciplines within the legal academy, you will end up faring better. Um, so my job talk paper was about citizenship, race, and segregation, and prisons. Those would be my like tag words everybody has something that they think about those topics even if it's they're not in crim or they're not in immigration and so i was able to kind of i think bring in the ip person um and obviously in certain fields that are more technical that's harder to do but if you can present your paper in a way that appeals the, the strange thing about both the legal academy and the job talk is that it's a kind of generalist performance where you have to appeal to people who know nothing about what you're talking about. And so a paper that um, that is the less technical of the papers you have and the sort of more generalist, more more sort of headline interesting might actually, I think, be the one to choose if you're sitting there looking at a, a whole series of them. And then I will also say, um, and th this is a point of debate, I think a paper with a normative punch to it ends up being more fun even if you're not a sort of normative thinker, this is, you know, historians will be like, I don't do that. I don't do presentist work. Like I'm just not doing that, in which case don't do that. But if you have a kind of piece that's more normative and one that's less, I think the normative aspect of a law review paper can bring in people. Cause they'll say like, I don't really know anything about the first 70 pages, but this proposal to abolish the legislature, that's interesting. And then people come in. So I think normative and generalist are the two sort of pieces of advice I would give. That's, I think, great advice. And I, <laughs> I saw your job talk paper delivered and you were fantastic. Um, and it was, a, it was a huge success. I mean, so it's, it's a fantastic article. Um, but I like, I, I think it's a great idea, sort of bringing, trying to even think through these, who's gonna be a, who, who in a generalist audience will be, will find this appealing. Um, it's it, just thinking through that is, I think, is brilliant. Uh, it's a great idea. Does that suggest that you sort of aim for the kind of paper that will be appealing to people? Like you don't want to cut across the grain too much? Oh, I was actually going to say appealing or appalling. 
You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't actually think that's the concern. I think the worst thing that can happen is like four questions and no one has more to say. This may be a very, this may have be, be um, a result of having been trained at Chicago where people disagreeing is like not at all a problem. But my sense is that you can, and I don't mean you have to be sort of purposely provocative because that's not what one should do. But I don't think people have to agree with what you're saying. And I don't think you should pick the topic that is generally appealing such that you don't offend, well, you shouldn't offend anyone, but you know, so that nobody disagrees with the thesis. I think it's more thinking about avoiding highly technical arguments or, um, or, or, or avoid sort of having a kind of self-referential conversation that isn't going to be something that somebody outside your field can understand. That's in part just about how you present whatever the paper is too. I'm merging into kind of job talk presentation. Because you can have a highly technical underlying paper, but it has to be something that you can present to me and Krim and I can talk to you about it, notwithstanding the fact that it's about trust and estates. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does seem that um, the job talks and, and probably more entry level job talks than lateral job talks are these moments where everyone's sort of watching to see who is this person. And it's weird, as you say, like that's an incredibly odd way of doing it. But the more you can kind of appeal to all these different audience members and bring them in and get them interested. It's almost like you're at a conversation at, you know, some sort of happy hour or something like that. And it's like, who can be the engaging person that brings them in with a topic that sort of appeals to the, all these different types of people. Then the, the, the classic reaction that people have in a talk, especially, you know, maybe, they, maybe they've read the paper, maybe they haven't is like, how does this relate to my work? And how, how does this, how, you know, I'm thinking of these issues, talk to me and and if you can do that through the topic selection that sounds that sounds like a you know a great idea um, yeah i've told people who've asked me about the job talk that it's actually the first part is about proving that you can teach and then the q a is about the kind of specialist i can play the ball game within the legal academy sort of intellectual part of things i sort of think they're two they're two different exercises and the first part is just can you be engaging to an audience who knows nothing about this. And then the second part is the crim person who asks the crim question and you really need to know that the references are right or the question like, you know, how does this relate to the study of starfish and you just like wing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's where your Bigelow learning comes in, right? You get Yeah, that. you're like, well, starfish in prison and then you keep going. <laughs> awesome. And I mean, you're, you're early in your career, although you've done uh, so much. I mean, you had a book that I guess came out when you were in the year you graduated from law school. Obviously, that's an, yeah. an unusual situation. But how how should you think about sort of building from the job talk other works? Sort of, do you think the best way to do it is when you first think about becoming a law professor, start sort of thinking of the research agenda and building the pieces then, or can you be more free to? find interesting topics and kind of go wherever you go and see where it takes you. Yeah, I mean, so I would, something I learned at Chicago, which I now do is I just have a Word document that I keep open of ideas as they come. Some of which are a sentence, some of which are a title, some of which are a paragraph, you know, and just sort of banking ideas as they come across your mind. So if you're thinking about going on the market, starting that now, and then, um, trying to turn that ultimately in practice turned into my research agenda. I actually think of all the things you create for the market, the research agenda is the single most important and actually most useful. 
because it's like sort of here's it's not here's my path to tenure is the way people talk about it which is oppressive but sort of here's the set of things i find interesting and where i might go um so i would say trying to create something like the ingredients for a research agenda in a really casual way as you kind of proceed through thinking about this ultimately turns out to be really useful when the time comes to do it but also you know i look back at that document and think oh that paper actually was an interesting idea or that's terrible or you know so sort of banking ideas and not thinking of yourself as in some kind of contract to write any of them but to kind of and that that may well be what you do now with ideas about what papers you're going to write later in your career but certainly early career sort of just keeping the ideas somewhere and keeping that sort of flowing in your case uh i gather that you sort of had a set of issues that you were interested in pretty early on i mean you wrote your 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 your, your book that came out you know your last year of law school or the around then um is on prisons and you then end up doing these really interesting articles after law school, also on the topic of, of prisons. Um, for those that are sort of struggling to figure out what topics to write on that may not have kind of a particular subject that they're sort of intrinsically you know, into, do you have advice on how to, how to figure that out? Yeah, um, I think there's sort of two ways to do it. You either have a thing that makes you wake up in the morning and has made you angry for a really long time and it's a topic or you you might be driven by your method so um you know you might be an economist or a historian or a sociologist or a psychologist who's less driven by asking questions about one thing but who's really interested in you know the way people's psychology works across a range of things so i would say figure out what it is whether you're a methods person or a topic person not that you can't be both um and then if you're sort of thinking about that, start reading in the field. So, you know, if you think I'm really a sociologist, read like the sociology of punishment, the sociology of, you know, the stuff that's being published in the legal academy and in law review journals in particular that has a sociological method and see what sort of inspires you to keep going. So I don't think it has to be a particular topic. Like I knew I wanted to study dogs since I was seven. That's like, you know, unreasonable. But I think a method could also drive your work. Great. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the, the steps that you go through in order to get ready to go on the market. So, it, you know, it can take years and, and I, I gather you know you you uh you know you clerked for two years and you're bigelow for two years and you've seen others who've also been preparing for the market um and and done very you know been highly successful it, it takes several years it seems like to really sort of get ready for that moment when you go on the entry level market and that that puts a lot of demands on people uh both financial demands they need to make you know some will, will have the resources for that some some won't and that's just not not an option uh, and then also family demands or sort of requiring being certain places you know you have to move to a place in order to be the fellow uh, or VAP there um, that's a lot of demands uh, for the system to put on people and some will be able to to deal with that and some won't Do you have kind of thoughts on how candidates should think through you know is it worth it to put that number of years in is it worth it to make those sacrifices uh, uh, which are required in order to just even go on the entry level market after all those years are over. Yeah, and it's turned into kind of an arms race where 
like you could have the clerkship and the fellowship and the PhD and the best is all three. And so you might as well be five, 45 when you start, you know, it's kind of absurd. Um, and also, as you say and mention, it filters out, it has disparate effects. I mean, it filters out women, it filters out all sorts of people who can't afford to wait until they're 33 to have a job that pays an amount of money that would make it feasible for them to live. Um, I think a couple things. My sense is that of those potential gold stars that one could try to accumulate, that clerking, while I loved it and I learned a lot from it, may be receding in import. Um, and that either a PhD or a fellowship are becoming increasingly important relative to the question of clerking. I think the, the old school model of a fine young man who did an excellent job in his clerkship may, may be disappearing. And I, I, mean, I meant that the way I said it. Um, uh, I think that, which isn't to say skip clerking, but if you're like, look, I have two years, what do I do with it? And if you really want to be a legal academic, I might say fellowship over clerkship. Um, which isn't to say clerk, clerking is interesting on all different levels, but uh, th maybe that one's not as important as it used to be. And um, I think also just thinking about, well, what, the other thing is, this is a really great job. So if you can do it, waiting to do it, I think is worth it. And I found it really scary to take the risk. I had this sense that I could have put all of this energy into a job I didn't get and start as like a first year at a law firm at 34 and it was not going to be the dream. Um, and I think that deters a lot of people who might otherwise want to do it, but it's a really, really good job if you can get it. And remembering that, that, that it's unusual to like your job this much, I think can motivate you to kind of keep going, but I, but also on a more sort of pragmatic note, not all of these things are required. You know, a PhD is not required. None of the things I mentioned is required. And thinking about which one's the best fit for you is probably the way to start. Start. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I think you're right in, in, in pointing out the, the importance of the idea that it's not all of this is required. And, and I think there's a stereotype that sort of the, the person who, you know, they clerked for this, you know, clerk in the Supreme Court, have a PhD. There's like you know, two people every year on the market that have actually checked every one of those boxes. Um, yeah, and, and maybe not get a job. Yeah, and then most have not. And, and so perfection is not necessarily the goal, but but it does seem that um, there's been a trade-off over the last 20 years. So let me just, you know, compare when I was on the teaching. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, as I'd mentioned earlier, I was just at my job at the Justice Department and people did not do fellowships typically at the time. And I was, you know, writing at night after practicing during the day and I could do it because it was a government job and it wasn't sort of law firm hours. Um, but it, that was still an era when you could sort of quietly go on the market. You didn't have to show on your resume, like I'm leaving the firm to become a VAP. And then as you point out, like if you become a VAP for two years and it doesn't work out, then you kind of have to go back. And that's really awkward to try to, you know, reconfigure that and that's that's a a real cost that that is 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 part of of that process and and there's a, there's a trade-off then of people being more prepared when they go on the market and sort of the standards in legal academia being higher and the cost and sort of narrowing the group of people that are willing to take all that risk and and i i know i've i've heard from the, um, those that have 
gone through this process, it didn't work out, and then they're kind of like, now what? And then you you know, you can tell people maybe try again because you've invested all of this, but sort of that that's a really hard situation to be in. And if yeah. you have thoughts on, on how you can know at the outset which group, you know, is it is it gonna be worth it? Is I think this really big question that people are yeah. asking. How can so, you tell it's going to be worth it in your case? Well, one thing I was thinking as you were talking is that it's an argument for applying to a fellowship because that's not as onerous as going on the job market. That you can do from your job. And because you don't need your full job talk paper, you just need sort of to apply. And typically it's a proposal about what you'll do there that's a couple pages. And that might, I, I'm hesitating because I don't want to say if you don't get a fellowship, you won't end up. But if you're really risk averse and you think I'm only going to do this if it's going to work out, one sort of dip your toe in way to figure out if you could enter the academy is to try to enter a legal teaching fellowship in which you have to prove you would ultimately be a sort of helpful member of the academy and use that as a sort of low cost way to figure out if you could enter. Because if you go and, you know, if people are like really elated about your ideas, it's a good signal that you've got something to offer. And, um, if you can't think about what you would even want to do during a fellowship, you probably are not in a position to, so maybe using fellowship applications, which are way lower cost as a way to kind of try, you don't even have to do the fellowship. They'll be mad at me about all the people who don't do it, but you know, like trying to think about that as a way to get into it, but whether or not it's worth it is a, it's a really hard question. I was a person, I think, I don't know, maybe you, you tell me if I'm right. I think a lot of people don't feel like they want to do anything else but this. I was like, I want to write in a room alone and teach. That's really who I am. And, you know, I thought a little bit about becoming a public interest lawyer and I did a lot of clinical work in law school to try those shoes on. Um, but this felt like if I could make this work, this is really the dream. And I think if you have that sense, you should listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right that there are a lot of people for whom it's just, it, it, I mean, it's a crazy great job. It's sort of amazing this job even exists. Uh, and so uh, I think there are enough people that feel that way that um, if you don't feel that way, it's probably a signal as to maybe that's not the right right thing for you. And those those who do feel that way are going to just say, listen, this is the moment to try. It's just, you know, th those that aren't sure it's going to work out um, do have this really fair question. H how do you sort of play your cards in a way that if it doesn't work out, you can come back, especially because and sort of looking at the current market, you know, the pandemic has hit and it's gonna impact uh, hiring. Uh, in some ways, we don't know in what way, but you never know the moment, the year you come on the market, whether that'll be a good hiring year or a terrible hiring year. And so there's just a lot of uncertainty that people have to grapple with. And I also think you could ask someone, like some professor of yours will be honest with you. Assess who would be honest with you, but you know, saying do i is this a good fit one thing i wanted to say is there's a really big difference between being a good law student and being a good academic and often that's not clear um, when you're in law school and you're doing well in law school you might think that means i should do this but in fact it may not um so maybe yeah applying for fellowships as a way to sort of see if you can get over that hump but also just being honest and asking the professors that you admire, whether this seems like something that you could do. I don't know, you know, it's hard to tell someone no to that, but it, if you frame it the right way, I actually think someone might say, this is a total crapshoot and you gotta have a lot more on your resume in order to really do this. If you get that kind of a signal back from your mentors, 
it may be telling as well. So I think candor and asking people is also valuable. Great. We've talked a little bit about the financial burdens of taking this long path to sort of getting ready and ideally prepping yourself for the market. There's also the, the personal questions that everybody will have to figure out of, you know, can I move to the place where the, the, the VAP is, or can I move to where the ultimate tenure track position is? People have to sort of figure out their, uh, uh, their, their life situation. They may have partners that are, you know, it's a dual career family. Increasingly, that's what's going on. And then they're going to have to deal with questions of children and all, all these life questions. Do you, you know, are, do you think schools are, 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 aware of these challenges and are dealing with them? Is there anything that the schools can do to sort of be more aware of those life questions? In, in part, I think because, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, it, it was not an issue. This is going back to your like a fine gentleman who did well in his clerkship or something like, like, you know, Dean Griswold would say, aha, you clerk for Justice Harlan. Uh, Justice Harlan says, you're great, come aboard. And then the, you know, the guy comes aboard with uh, his wife who raises the children. That was sort of the model where schools just ignored all this stuff. And obviously that's not the case today. Um, and and um, what can schools do better or, or are schools doing as, as well as they can sort of in thinking through these sorts of problems? Um, no, uh, I think, so one, one thing I hadn't thought I would say, but now I think I will is, I think it's incumbent upon law professors to reach out to students, particularly women and people of color and people that get filtered out through all of the demands that you're talking about, if you think they have promise. I mean, I think actually this kind of mentoring of one L's or two L's who you think actually should write a note to see if they like writing a note, this kind of cultivating of it early might actually really matter. Because for someone who hadn't been thinking about it, you know, I thought I was going to go be a sociologist and instead decided to add a law degree, which is why I looked so like ready by the time I did it. It was because I sort of took a turn toward law school late. But if you were, you know, 24 and in law school and someone said, hey, you should really think about this, that could be hugely significant in changing the course of how you went through law school. So I think, um, you know, students who want to be in academic type programs or committees and sort of identifying students early is one thing law schools can do at the front end to ensure that you don't have people who are 35 that just can't think about it now. Um, and then, you know, maybe to undo everything I've said, changing the model of hiring would change this. So not requiring a fully complete job talk paper and not requiring a resume that looked the way we want resumes to look. I mean, you know, you could imagine, I guess there's a smaller answer and a bigger answer. And the bigger, more structural answer is it's very strange to hire someone who has to be like perfectly ready at the perfect moment, as opposed to just evaluating someone more holistically. And that might actually help for the people who can't take off the time to go move their spouse to somewhere else for two years. And that of course disproportionately affects women and you know lots of groups, but I'm thinking particularly about women because the model of sort of bringing along your partner, let's just, in a heterosexual couple with a woman and a man, it is more likely that the man can bring his partner than the other way around. Um, and that, that shows up in schools where, I think actually what that ends up doing is pushing women in this profession towards schools and cities. So I think it will be 
if you sort of projected this out over time, I think it might be harder and harder. Pandemic notwithstanding, because if everyone's working remotely, this might change. But it all works on Zoom. <laughs> schools not in cities are going to have a do have, I think, a harder time recruiting women who attend who are married to men or who are you know in relationships with men, um, because I think it's harder to get them to follow. This is like talking, you know, ten thousand feet. I have a really terrific spouse who went wherever I wanted after much much conversation. <laughs> um, no, yeah, no, I mean, that matters. Having someone who's willing to move. And I actually think the if there is a rise in remote work, this could have a positive effect. Oh, really interesting. Yeah. My, my husband works remotely. So his job is based in Northern California. And he was able to go to the school that I ended up choosing to go to because he was able to work remotely. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think this is a major shift. Um, that, that schools are grappling with, you know, that switch from the typically male uh, uh, hire who was able to sort of bring a family along to dual career families where, you know, that, that I think has made a major impact on schools with some schools benefiting, as you say, the ones in cities, the ones, you know, when I was at, uh, uh, in DC at, at GW, that was a big selling point of GW, sure. right? We could say we're in downtown DC, this is great for partners and, and this is a great place to be, especially in law, um, which you know a lot of lawyers marry lawyers. Um, and so that, that's an advantage there and then a disadvantage at other schools that are, that are less centrally located. And I've, I've noticed that you know, it's more likely, for example, um, for schools that are not in cities to have you know, to hire couples, you know, both to, both academics, both, yeah, both academics, or find a position for the, the non-academic partner somewhere in the university, and it's sort of, I assume, just they, they kind of have to in order to be able to um, uh, be appealing for academics that have a lot of options. Uh, but that I think is a really uh, significant structural change um, that schools are grappling with, and I just don't know if they've they've sort of figured it out yet, or there's still a long way to go. No, I think it's hard, and I think it's a barrier to recruiting. I'll, I'll speak about women, but I suspect it's broader groups of people. It's a barrier to recruiting women um, overall, these kind of entrenched dynamics about two dual spouse couples. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what's next? I'm interested to know to the extent you can say kind of uh, where, where your research agenda is taking you, uh, the, the, the next article or articles or, or what's kind of planned. Yeah, well, um, so I tend to have a kind of front burner and a back burner. The front burner is stuff that can be written without FOIA. Uh, so I, my methodology, I, my background is in ethnography and in actually being able to go into penal institutions. It's impossible in the United States. It's super impossible during a pandemic. Um, and so I tend to use FOIA a lot to find out information about what's going on inside custodial institutions. That is not a method that aligns with a really productive research agenda pre-tenure because <laughs> it takes a year to get all of that. So I tend to have back burner FOIA projects and then front burner doctrinal or theoretical projects. So I'm writing, um, I'm doing a long-term study of the economics of prisons and in particular uh, just the cost of running prisons. So we don't actually have a sense of how much it costs to run prisons state by state. So I'm doing a 50 state study of what would it mean to um well you could think about it as what would it mean to divest from prisons but also just 
the real sort of frame is prisons are operating as many welfare states and we don't have our head wrapped around just how much prisons are supporting. So how much are they spending on sort of jobs for correctional officers, healthcare inside prison? Um, so trying to grapple with the full scope of our spending on prisons is a long-term project I'm working on. And um, in the nearer term, I'm working on projects on private prosecution. And um, I have a project about how pathological the dynamics of prison doctrine are, because I wanted to write just like a doctrinal prison paper. So, um, and then I have a couple citizenship ones. This is your list that you have going, but right now it's the FOIA paper and the private prosecution paper will be in the, in the hopper next. And um, you know, when next is, is a different question we can talk about. <laughs> Great. Well, I think we're, we're just about out of time, but I want to thank you for showing, uh, uh, coming on the show. It's been incredibly helpful and I'm a big fan of your work. I look forward to all of it coming down the pike and uh, thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Thanks for asking me. It's good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Legal Academy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us at wherever you rate podcasts. If you'd like to watch a video version of this episode, you can find it on YouTube at channel The Legal Academy. Finally, you can also follow us on Twitter at The Legal Academy. Thank you.